For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the deaths of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war. I me, I see the ruin of my house. The tiger now hath seized the gentle hind. Insulting tyranny begins to jut upon the innocent and aweless throne. What is a man? Sure he made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. O oh, my dear father, restoration hang thy medicine on my lips, and let this kiss repair those violent harms that my two sisters have in thy reverence made. I am a king that find thee, and I know, tis not the balm, the scepter and the ball, the sword, the mace, the crown imperial, the throne he sits on, nor the pomp that beats on the high shore of the world. This is the mighty history of the British Empire, a people living on a tiny island in the North Atlantic Ocean, built an empire that circled the earth, and brought freedom and education to languishing millions. This empire was blessed by Almighty God and one of his best educated teachers, William Shakespeare. Shakespeare has educated some of the greatest leaders of all time, such as Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill. We shall never surrender. Our troubled world needs a fresh crew of nation-building leaders. Are you ready to step up to the challenge? Welcome to the exciting classroom of Shakespeare's royal education with host Dennis Leap. Well, greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Shakespeare's royal education. Well, I have three comments uh, that came in over the last couple weeks, so I'm uh, really to... Uh, to pass these along. It says, hello. It says, uh, yesterday I was in the kitchen, so I listened to your first Shakespeare podcast. I enjoyed it, and especially the way you used Mr. Gerald Flurry's article as part of the intro to the whole program you have planned. That was very encouraging. I will encourage others to tune in when they can, as so many have little or no interest of knowledge of Shakespeare. The education system here has been terrible for a long time. And uh, uh, so I don't know if I'll tell you the country this is from because I don't want to embarrass the whole country. But it, but it is from an English-speaking country, which is really funny. Uh, this person goes on, We are so blessed to have this type of education at no cost. So uh, it's interesting. They uh, they go on to say, I had also had rewatched Kenneth Branagh's Henry V recently. It's easy to follow the storyline and loads of action. I recommend it to the family, and they pulled a face, but I think Mold got them started on what they would enjoy. <laughs> so he's, uh, she goes on to say there's plenty of battle scenes for the boys. So, so I think that's a, that's a great comment. So I love Henry V. I also love Branagh's uh, Hamlet, and, uh, of course, we're going to be doing Henry V, and we will be doing uh, Hamlet on this radio program. So uh, she ends by saying, keep on keeping on. And so I will do that. All right, here is a, uh, a another comment, and this is from uh, uh, Iris. And she says, I am so thrilled to hear the second podcast for this program. 
It's like I continue my education through the work through this work once again. I only have a 12th grade education, but delight at the young age of 73 to hear your studies of Shakespeare. In my small library, I have kept a book an uncle of mine had in his collection. It was a 1936 version of Charles and Mary Lamb's book, Tales from Shakespeare. I've tried getting into these short stories, but always gave up too quickly because of the pages crumbling as I turned them. You are inspiring me to buy a book with pages I can turn, LOL. And uh, you're not going to believe what we're going to be talking about today, Uh, uh, all of you out there that are going to be listening. So love the way this is being presented and cannot wait for the next podcast. We can be, as Mr. Flurry has stated many times, educated through great leaders of our past, such as Shakespeare, Lincoln, and Churchill. Thank you for developing a program such as this. And uh, uh, I really appreciate that, Iris, and I think you're going to be tickled when you hear the uh, podcast today. And uh, I planned this before I read your, your email, by the way. All right, here's another one, and this one is from Canada, and it's the first mail. Uh, that M-A-L-E, by the way, not M-A-I-L, M-A-L-E, that wrote me. He's a former student of mine, and he said, Hi, Mr. Leap, I firstly want to thank you for taking the initiative, time, and effort to establish and produce your new podcast on Shakespeare's Royal Education. I'll be honest. At the time I attended AC, I did not appreciate or value Shakespeare to the degree I should have. In more recent years, I have worked to follow Mr. Flurry's lead and have developed a greater appreciation for his literary works. I will share with you that Henry V is my favorite play, as I like the history, leadership, and patriotism themes. And uh, I do as well. We need to have more Henry V attitude in our lives. Second, I am very excited that at some future point, you will be devoting time on your podcast to discuss Carlton Ogburn's book, I purchased the book last year and finally got to reading all 780 pages earlier this year. Congratulations. I have not gotten that far in the book yet. So uh, congratulations for getting there. Honestly, I would say it was one of the most fascinating books I've ever read, and much of it read like a mystery novel following a crime scene. It was certainly not easy to read. I had oftentimes, I found myself reading 50 pages a night, but I didn't want to stop. It's a, it's a very hard work to concentrate on, and I, it, and, uh, I, I know that's true, and it's, it said it's somewhat a very scholarly, but it's so interesting, almost addictive. I didn't want to stop reading. Reading the book actually sparked a literary renaissance of ambition in my life to get back into my love of writing. And that's always good because I love writing as well. Says, anyway, I've greatly enjoyed your program so far and look forward to more episodes to come. Thanks again, and keep up the great work, Mr. Leap. And that's sincerely David from Canada. And so uh, I do miss you, David. I'll just say that right now. And I'm, I'm glad you're finally getting smart about Shakespeare. So, so uh, on our first two podcasts, I discussed how the study and reading of William Shakespeare's works has been removed from the curriculums of the vast majority of high school, colleges, and universities. And then I used uh, uh, that extensive article written by the Chancellor of Herbert W. Armstrong College, that's Mr. Joe Fleury, and I showed you why Shakespeare plays should be taught and read. 
Now, some of the comedies may be great entertainment, such as Much Ado About Nothing. And I do, uh, after a semester is over, my wife and I like to have a barbecue, and we usually invite the students over to our home to watch that, because it's, it's actually a, a great comedy. Uh, but uh, some of the comedies and some of the other plays he's written, they're really not that advantageous for the classroom. So we will not be doing uh, comedies in, in this podcast, and there's a lot of plays on leadership and kingship, and uh, we'll be focusing on those. But uh, I feel like I have probably three years of material uh, for podcasts, so uh, we're not going to run out of, of uh, things to discuss uh, at all. Now today what I want to do is I want to help you uh, to prepare to read our first play, King Lear. Now, you, you really do, uh, for all the listeners out there, you really do need to, to develop a certain mindset about Shakespeare when, when you start reading his plays. Because so many people think they're so hard, and I, I get really disgusted and discouraged about when I read other teachers saying that they just don't want to teach the hard words or the hard... Uh, you know, phrases in Shakespeare, and they're really not that hard if you really get the right mindset about it. Now, I think King Lear, now it is a tragedy, and there are some some really tragic scenes that we're going to read, but I think this tragedy is one of Shakespeare's finest on the corruption found in human nature, the corruption that could be found in kingly authority, and it's a classic example of how kings can fall from majesty. And, uh, you know, this is something that, that uh, we need to be studying even today. I believe this play has much to say about our world today. And, uh, you know, especially in the, the English-speaking countries, it, all, of our, all of our countries are going through the same thing at the same time. And, of course, uh, it's not good. And, uh, you know, Mr. Gerald Flurry has pegged it exactly right the way it is, as Satan has gotten to the minds of some of these people. And, uh, you know, we're going to see that, that uh, when we get into this play with King Lear that he actually does go mad uh, and being so frustrated at certain things. And uh, it just opens him up for, well, influenced by, you know, negative powers. So just by way of reminder, um, you know, for, for you to prepare to really participate in this podcast, remember now you need to search for Shakespeare's Royal Education. That's my, my new Twitter page. So it is titled Shakespeare's Royal Education. And uh, that's, that's a vehicle where we can communicate to each other. And, and I'll even bring this up a little bit more by the end of this podcast. Now, remember, you need to buy the first three plays we're going to, to discuss. And that's going to take us several months. So you could buy one at a time. But our first play is going to be King Lear. Then we're going to Julius Caesar. And then we're going to King John. Now, I told you that you could find the, uh, the Pelican version um, of these on abebooks.com, and I just bought another one, uh, another play that talks about leadership. I'm not going to give you the title because I'm not necessarily sure I want want you to to uh, think about this is going to be part of the the podcast or not. But uh, I just found a great used copy of it at abebooks.com, and so any of these books you can you can get them for under four dollars. Uh, maybe $5, and uh, always go for the good or the very fine ones, and that you might pay a little bit more. Uh, but also, the, even the Pelican series, you can find some of them on uh, Amazon.com, but you're going to pay maybe $10 to, to uh, $15 for them. 
So uh, uh, I am going to be recommending over the the uh, the podcast and weeks and months ahead uh, some more books to buy. And essentially, I want to help you build a good Shakespeare library for yourself of not only books about the plays, but the plays as well. Now, remember, there are two new podcasts a month, and uh, they, they will always air on the 1st and the 15th. Now, uh, if you have a, a notepad, notebook, uh, as uh, you know, our first uh, uh, commenter today, she looked at the podcast as a classroom. And so if you, uh, you have a pencil or a pen and notepad, I think it would be good for you to, to uh, just uh, see yourself. You're in a classroom and you're taking notes. And, of course, uh, you can be thankful there won't be any tests or exams or papers due. And so, uh, but I still think it's really important for you to just kind of take notes on, on uh, what I'm discussing today. And then also, uh, essentially, you can listen to this podcast again. So this is already the third podcast. So uh, it's really pretty exciting for me. All right, so, so how to prepare to read the play. The, the first thing, and this is what I teach all of my students, you need to familiarize yourself with the characters of the play. And uh, you know, it's, it's hard you, to, to break into the middle of something, and especially the way you know, Shakespeare phrases things and some of the words he uses. But uh, if you look at the beginning of all your plays, there's usually a list of characters for, for the play. And then you can also go online and then uh, usually you can find a summary of the play, you can find a list of characters of the play, and uh, you, know, you can read those. F- and they usually have a little expl- extra explanation. And uh, uh, I'm going to just give you some samples of uh, you know, what you can get and what you can find. You can find short versions and you can find long versions. And uh, sometimes you'll find uh, versions that are not right. <laughs> so, so you've got to be careful. But uh, if, if you look at the play King Lear, there's not really that many characters. And of course, Lear, uh, you know, he's King Lear, and we're going to be talking a lot more about him in just a few more minutes. But he's aged, and uh, he's probably in his early 80s when the play opens. He is subject to being wrathful. He's foolish. He makes rash decisions, but he is the king of Britain. <laughs> and so, so uh, that's not a good thing. All right, then one of the next characters is, is Goneril. That's his oldest daughter, and uh, she's very selfish. And actually, she turns out to be one of the biggest villains in the play. Now, he has a second daughter, and uh, uh, her name is Reagan, and uh, she's just as self-seeking and selfish as her older sister, but she's even probably a little more conniving. And uh, she's also a villain in the play, and she turns out to be a villain. And uh, you know that that's uh, that's really kind of sad. All right, the the next character is Cordelia, and that is Lear's youngest, but she is a selfless daughter and she's not selfish she loves her father deeply but she she is uh, really not impressed with her two older sisters at all and when all three of them are together she'll kind of just keep her mouth shut and so uh, uh, it's uh, it's interesting about Cordelia all right the next uh, one of the next characters the Duke of Albany and that's Goneril's mild-mannered husband 
and he is he is uh, mild mannered, and uh, you know I would say we could be really certain there that she wears the pants, but uh, by the end of the play he actually toughens up, and uh, and and as we go through the play you'll find out why he has to toughen up. Also, uh, 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 remember that Duke of Alchemy is Goneril's husband. Okay, then there's the Duke of Cornwall, and that is Reagan's husband, and uh, uh, he. He is uh, an amazing character, and in fact, he is another villain. And in fact, as this, uh, this little description says of him, he holds limitless capacity for cruelty. And uh, we're not going to give away what he does, but it is absolutely unbelievable what happens in the play. All right, there's the King of France and the Duke of Burgundy. They only show up in one scene. Uh, they don't have very many lines but they are rival suitors for Cadelia's hand in marriage. And so, uh, you know, they have their place and then they're gone. And it's interesting too that Cordelia is, is uh, probably the sweetest daughter he has and loves him the most. And uh, she only has a few lines in the play. She only shows up in the very first scene and, and uh, towards the, the last couple scenes. All right, then there's the Earl of Gloucester and you have to learn to say these things right. I spent some time in England and I was saying them all wrong and I got corrected every time I said them wrong. So uh, the Earl of Gloucester, now it is spelled G-L-O-U-C-E-S-T-E-R. Don't ever say Gloucester. (laughs) It's not the right way to say it, it's just Gloucester. Now, like Lear, he suffers greatly due to his rashness. And one of the things about this play for all of you out there, it is the only Shakespeare play that has two subplots. Or maybe you should say a plot and a subplot. And of course there's the plot that happens with Lear and his daughters, and then there's the subplot of what happens with Gloucester and his two sons. One is uh, a legitimate son and an heir to, uh, to his earldom, and the other one is a illegitimate son. And uh, uh, of course, uh, when we get into the play, you'll you'll see that Shakespeare was not afraid to use the word bastard, and uh, even the Bible uses that word. And so, uh, in many respects, um, you know, it can seem really bad for you know a young a young man that uh, you know his father was uh, you know probably to blame for his illegitimacy, and uh, so uh, you'll see that in this play that that really comes out in the play. All right, so Gloucester is just as rash and kind of uh, not really aware of people and how people are. Okay, next character is Edgar. That's Gloucester's uh, elder, faithful son, uh, and, and he's also legitimate. And then there's, there's uh, Edmund, and that is Gloucester's younger son. And, of course, this, uh, this description of the character says that he's a younger bastard son and uh, he's got the nickname uh, in the play because he is one of the villains in the play as well but he's a stowed a toad spotted traitor <laughs> that's what they that's what they call him the toad spotted traitor and of course when we get into Richard the third that's not going to be a long time from now uh, I think they called him uh, the same thing a toad spotted traitor all right then there's Earl of Kent uh, he is a noble, and he's a true-hearted uh, uh, 
let's say, member of King Lear's court. He's devoted to Lear. He's uh, very honest, but he's also very outspoken. Now, that doesn't mean he's rash. He's just not afraid to tell you what the, you know, what the truth is. Okay, then another of the, uh, the characters in the play is the fool. And, of course, uh, the fool is Lear's devoted attendant. And uh, yet he is really kind of sharp in his commentary on Lear's actions. And uh, he galls the old king. But Lear does know he's a good friend. Okay, then there's Oswald. Oswald is a Goneril Steward. He's a base, proud, and a shallow villain. So here's another one of the villains in the play. We have a few of them. And, uh, um, you know, Oswald just uh, does anything Goneril wants him to do. And actually, Goneril um, tells Oswald to disrespect her father as much as he wants, even though he was the former king. There's another... Uh, uh, character that you don't really see a whole lot in the play is the character Curran, and he's a follower and a servant of Gloucester. And then there is another another character just called Old Man, and uh, he's uh, one of Gloucester's tenants. And, uh, um, you know, I, I won't tell you everything there. All right, so that's, that's like one summary that you can get online. Now, there's other ones that are, are much better, and... Uh, let, let me give you just, uh, this is from Sparks Notes, and uh, uh, sometimes you, know, you have to be careful where you get your summaries. But I, I would say Spark Notes and Schmoop, and um, you know, some of them are really you know, pretty, pretty uh, more detailed, but they can also have their mistakes. So I'll just read a couple of these since we have some time. It says, um, this is the character list from King Lear. And it says here, uh, King Lear, it says, The aging king of Britain and the protagonist of the play, Lear is used to enjoying absolute power and to being flattered, and he does not respond well to being contradicted or challenged. At the beginning of the play, his values are notably hollow. He prioritizes the appearance of love over actual devotion and wishes to maintain the power of a king while unburdening himself of the responsibility. And that's a much better summary of what the play is about. And so, so uh, uh, if if you uh, you know you you need to really look for for these kind of things. Uh, and, in other words, to get your summary. And so, uh, uh, let me just read you about Cordelia. It says, Lear's youngest daughter, disowned by her father for refusing to flatter him, Cordelia is held in extremely high regard by all of the good characters in the play. The king of France marries her for her virtue alone, overlooking her lack of dowry. She remains loyal to Lear despite his cruelty towards her, forgives him and displays a mild and forbearing temperament even toward her evil sisters, Goneril and Regan. And so, so uh, uh, anyway, that's a better description now of Cordelia because it's giving you a little bit of hint of the history, or, or, or I shouldn't say the history, but what's going on in the play. Uh, I just have to read this about the two daughters. This is Goneril. It says, Lear's ruthless oldest daughter and the wife of the Duke of Albany. Goneril is jealous, treacherous, and amoral. Shakespearean audience would have been particularly shocked at Goneril's aggressiveness, a quality that it would not have been expected in a female character. She challenges Lear's authority, boldly initiates an affair with Edmund, and wrestles military power away from her husband. So she's, she's a villain. 
Then it says, Regan, Lear's middle daughter and the wife of the Duke of Cornwall, Regan is as ruthless as Goneril and as aggressive in all the same ways. In fact, it is difficult to think of any quality that distinguishes her from her sister when they are not egging each other on to the further acts of um, villainy. And so so uh, they're in this, they're, they're both villains uh, together. Now, the description of Gloucester says, a nobleman loyal to King Lear whose rank earl is below that of Duke. The first thing we learn about Gloucester is that he's an adulterer, having fathered a bastard son, Edmund. His fate is in many ways parallel to that of Lear. He misjudges which of his children to trust. He appears weak and ineffectual in the early acts when he's unable to prevent Lear from turning out of his own house. But he later demonstrates that he is also capable of great bravery. And so Lear is is probably one of the most interesting characters in the play. And uh, really, uh, you know, as we get through it and get to to the end of it, you're going to see how much Gloucester and actually King Lear help each other. Then Edgar, uh, this uh, description says, Gloucester's older legitimate son, Edgar, plays many different roles, starting out as a gullible fool, easily tricked by his brother, then assuming a disguise as a mad beggar to evade his father's men, then carrying his impersonation further to aid Lear and Gloucester, and finally appearing as an armored champion to avenge his brother's treason. That's, this would be a great... Uh, I, I was in drama when I was in high school and college, and uh, that would have been a great part to have in a play. I would have loved to have been, been that guy. All right, the fool. Uh, again, I don't think I need to go into that. He's just... Uh, he's really funny but he's probably the smartest and the wisest guy in the play. <laughs> I mean, not just for wisecracking, he's just got wisdom. And so, uh, uh, of course, then Oswald, we already talked about him. Uh, he obeys his mistress' commands and helps her in her conspiracies. So, so that, that's, those are two samples of, of uh, you know, a cast of characters. Now, let's talk a little bit about summaries. You, you can do the same thing with summaries. It's good to have a summary that will give you a storyline of the play. and uh, um, But you have to be careful. Some of them are re- really pretty short, and they don't really give you everything you need. I'm just going to read you a little bit from one summary um, that uh, that I actually have in a, in a handout series for the students. And the reason why I use a shorter one for them is because I'm right there in class with them all the time. And so I won't be in class with you all the time. And so uh, you're going to have to do some work on your own. Uh, So this is a summary that I give the students here at uh, Armstrong College. This is the summary of the play beginning with Act 1. I should say that as well. It says, The Earl of Gloucester introduces his illegitimate son Edmund to the Earl of Kent at court. Lear, King of Britain, enters. Now that he is old, Lear has decided to abdicate, retire, divide his kingdom between his three daughters. Each will receive a portion of the kingdom according to how much they love him. And so, so that's, that's a short beginning to it. And uh, again, it's, it satisfies the students because we're going to be talking a lot to them during class. Um, th- th- this summary goes on to say, one of Cordelia's suitors, the Duke of Burgundy, rejects her, her once, uh, once she is dowerless, but the King of France understands her declaration and takes her as his wife. The Earl of Kent is banished for taking Cordelia's part against the king. The kingdom is shared between Goneril and Regan. Lear tells them that he intends to live alternately with each of them. Now, one thing that where this summary lacks 
lack some depth is it's uh it's it's really what um king lear does is is he uh gives the land to the daughters but then he gives crowns to their two husbands so in other words he gives up his crown and he gives each one of them like a coronet which would be like a smaller crown so uh so so essentially what we find out in the play is the two daughters really envy each other anyway and then the husbands they get in the middle of it as well we can just read a little bit more and it says meanwhile edmund is determined to be recognized as a rightful son of gloucester and persuades his father that his legitimate brother Edgar is plotting against Gloucester's life. And so so that's where, when you're reading the play, you can't believe it. And then I also like to show the students a uh, Royal Shakespeare Company production of King Lear. And you just wonder, well, why does Gloucester, why does he just believe this illegitimate son? He just believes it just right up front. Um, but anyway, the, uh, Edmund then, uh, again, he's a villain, he warns his brother Edgar that his life is in danger uh, because he said his father is going to kill him. And so uh, that's when Edgar flees and disguises himself as a beggar. Um, Goneril becomes increasingly exacer- exasperated by the behavior of Lear's hundred followers who are disturbing his life at Albany Castle. And then Kent has returned in disguise and gains a place as a servant to Lear. So again, that's, that's a summary. It goes on here and says, Edmund acts as a messenger between the sisters and is courted by each in turn. So, so Edmund gets mixed up with the other two villains, and then they both end up falling in love with him. One husband dies, uh, is killed in a, uh, in a situation. I don't want to give all of, it, all of it away yet. And then the other sister gets jealous uh, that she's now free to marry uh, uh, Edmund, and so her sister poisons her. So, so that's that's part of that happens in the play. All right. Um, then Edgar, I mean, uh, what we have is King Lear actually goes mad, but then Edgar is pretending to be mad, and uh, he takes refuge in a shelter. And the fool and the mad king in Gloucester, they almost all end up there together. And so, so again, I'm, I'm making this shorter. And then uh, uh, Cordelia, um, she knows her father's in trouble. So she and the king of France, they muster up an army, and they come back to, uh, um, to England to save the father. And essentially, they're fighting Albany, and uh, they lose the fight. And uh, basically, at the end, Cordelia and uh, Lear and the two other sisters are all dead. And so we, we'd, uh, there's no... Uh, there's no uh, worrying about the end because so many people know the end of the story all right so that's that is one sample of a of a uh it's it's an okay summary um there's uh there's also a better summary like i said and uh i just want to go back to to what this uh, lady said about charles and mary lamb's tales from shakespeare so uh if if you really look at um let's say, uh, finding a story flow from each play. This book, this little book called Tales from Shakespeare is by Charles and Mary Lamb. It was written in 1807, and it really is, it is a classic. And uh, I, you can get on ABE Books and find this, find this uh, really inexpensive copy of it. Uh, I looked on ABE Books today, and they have an original edition and it's worth like $2,900. <laughs> so 
if, if you'd like really important books, that's $2,900 for this book. But essentially what they did is they wrote it for, uh, for students, and it gives them uh, a really good summary of the play so that they uh, can better understand it. And so in other words, this was like a preparatory book for them to get them ready to really study Shakespeare. And uh, I don't think it's a bad deal at all. In fact, I think, I think all of you out there would really enjoy having it. And what I'll do is, uh, I think what I'll do is I'll uh, make some kind of post up on my, uh, my Shakespeare page so that you can see the book and, and the title. And I do recommend it. I think it, this version I bought, yeah, it was costing about eight bucks. And so I think when you get on abebooks.com, you can find one. Uh, a little cheaper than that. All right, I just want to read you just a little bit from, from, from their book, just to show you the difference. And uh, even Dame Judi Dench wrote an introduction to the volume that I had, and she said this is one of the one of the best books that you could get uh, to to introduce you to Shakespeare's plays. And um, you know, it's it's uh, don't be insulted that it was written as an introduction for young people because uh, you know, it will really help you uh, as you begin to read the play. Uh, this is just page 147 in the book if you decide to buy it. And I will be recommending um, more than one book for you. And so you might want to start saving, saving a little budget to buy books because uh, uh, I think I have found some really great books that will help, help you. Says Lear, King of Britain had three daughters, Goneril, wife to the Duke of Albany, Regan, wife to the Duke of Cornwall, and Cordelia, a young maid, for whose love the King of France and Duke of Burgundy were joint suitors and were at this time making stay for that purpose in the court of Lear. Now, so so there this is all a summary of Act Act One, first couple scenes. Says the old king, worn out with age and the fatigues of government, he being more than fourscore years old, determined to take no further part in the state affairs, but to leave the management to younger strengths, that he might have time to prepare for death, which must at no long period ensue. With this intent, he called his three daughters to him to know from their own lips which of them loved him best, that he might part his kingdom among them in such proportions as their affection for him should seem to deserve. And so, so essentially, what the lambs tell us is he wants to divide his kingdom among his three daughters. And, uh, you know, there's so much danger in that. And this is where I really, uh, this is where I really believe this play is actually speaks to our time, because if you look at the United States, it's divided. I mean, we are a divided kingdom. We have red states and blue states, and people have already made uh, made it known that they're willing to secede from the Union. And so, so uh, uh, as, you go, as we go through the play, we're going to see that there was, there was war, uh, you know, happened in Britain over this decision. Let, let me go on here now. It's, it, this uh, talks a little bit about Goneril again. It says, Goneril, the eldest, declared that she loved her father more than words could give out that he was dearer to her than the light of her own eyes, dearer than life and liberty, with a deal of such professing stuff which is easy to counterfeit where there is no real love, only a few fine words delivered with confidence being wanted in that case. The king, delighted to hear from her own mouth the assurance of her love and thinking truly that her heart went with it, 
in a fit of fatherly fondness, bestowed on her and her husband one-third of his ample kingdom. And so, so it just shows you know, that she's great with her words. She didn't love her father. And it comes out really quickly. It says, then calling him to his second daughter, he demanded what she had to say. And of course, Reagan, who was made of the same hollow metal as her sister, was not a whit behind her in profession, but rather declared that what her sister had spoken came short of the love which he professed to bear for his highness, insomuch that she found all joys dead in comparison with the pleasure which she took in the love of her dear king and father. And so he gives her an equal, an equal uh, piece of England to the size that he had given Goneril. Then Cordelia, she comes up, she realizes it's all fake, and she tells her father, basically, I love you because it's my duty to love you. And uh, uh, this is where that statement comes in, nothing comes from nothing. And, and she, she, uh, um, she just wasn't going to get into the thing her sisters got into because she wasn't after his money or after his land. Uh, the lambs go on and say, Cordelia then told her father that he was her father, that he had given her breeding and loved her, that she returned those duties back as it was most fit and did obey him, love him, and most honor him but that she could not frame her mouth to such large speeches as her sisters had done. In other words, in the play, she says she cannot heave her heart into her mouth. And so, so uh, uh, again, I just wanted to read parts of that to you um, because it does show you that you can get a really good summary and uh, uh, you could just have it on your bookshelf as well. And so, uh, um, again... That's, that's just really good to do. So make sure you familiarize yourself with the story behind each play. All right. Uh, the next thing that I want to bring out is that you need to familiar yourself, familiarize yourself with the history behind the play. Now, w- one of the things that you have to understand is that, that even a lot of the plays, even like Hamlet, there is a, there is a history behind it. There, there is a Danish legend, you know, about uh, about. Uh, Hamlet, and of course, uh, uh, on uh, our last couple of podcasts, we talked about even how Mr. Flurry felt that the play Hamlet was really autobiographical for for uh, Shakespeare, and he probably uh, had this whole vision of how to write that play because of what he saw in the British court. And so, so even that, even though it's not necessarily a history play, that it, it um, you know probably does, it probably is founded in some history. All right, so. So, so one of the one of the big questions about King Lear is, is the is the history of King Lear really, you know, really true? And uh, you know, I think there are things that that well, you know, we can look at. If you you can look this up, uh, uh, essentially Shakespeare took his history from Geoffrey of Monmouth's account of King Lear, in uh, the history of the kings of Britain. Now, uh, there's also Hollinshed. He had his, his chronicles, and he took a lot of his history from Geoffrey Monmouth. And so you have scholars today that um, you know, really don't put a lot of stock in it. I'll just read you a little part of this. This is from the, the British Library. It says, Geoffrey of Monmouth was a scholar and probably also a monk, educated in Monmouth and living in Oxford. He was, uh, in later life, Bishop of St. Asfeth. He wrote his work, Historia Regnum Britanniae, in Latin, which tells the history of Britain from its founding by the Trojan Brutus up to the death of King Arthur and the return of the Saxons. 
Joffrey claimed to have translated from a very old book in the British tongue, but really he seems to have collected his various chronicle, biblical, and classical and folk stories, and possibly even included some of his own too in order to create a British history. So, so that's the way current scholars believe. And uh, I've uh, done some other research on it. There are other uh, historians that do uh, think there's something to the history, and uh, even archaeology is beginning to find, uh, you know, when you go back that far, they're beginning to find, you know, parts of civilizations, and they're finding fine pottery and all that. So, so there's definitely uh, uh, more, more to say about it. I have uh, uh, something by Harold Bloom here. But anyway, that's Jeffrey of Monmouth. If you want to look that up online for yourself, you can do that. But uh, you know, Harold Bloom, he's a, he's a famous English author and scholar on, on Shakespeare. And uh, he, he believes that King Lear is, is one of the best plays. He loves it. He loved this play. Uh, here's what he says about the history. He says, Shakespeare being Shakespeare, I have not the temerity to suggest precisely what they are. He says, the gods of King Lear are curiously Roman in name, Though they are more or less historical, King Lear was supposed to have reigned about the time of the founding of Rome, and so so he's questioning why do these gods in in the, if this is so old, you know why why do these gods have Roman names? And what he's saying is King Lear would have lived about the time of the founding of Rome in the eighth century before the Common Era. This might have made Lear the contemporary of the prophet Elijah. And so alive a century before the, the King Solomon the Wise. And so, so here, Harold Bloom, uh, you know, uh, none of us can prove the history, but, but I do think it's, it's interesting that when, when this play was published, uh, Shakespeare's version of, of Lear, it was published in 1608, and the title under his name, and so in other words, it, it has William Shakespeare at the top of the title page, but then the title is His True Chronicle History of the Life and Death of King Lear and His Three Daughters. And so, so the, 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 the thing is there, you know, I think William Shakespeare believed that, you know, that it was true. And so, uh, um, you know, I, I think we, we can just kind of say, well, let the scholars fight about it. Let's just enjoy the play. And because there are still many, 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 many good lessons in it. There's another book that, that, that I want to um, talk to you much more about as, as we go through this series. And it's, uh, it's by a Shakespeare ex- expert. His name is James Shapiro. And um, uh, he has this really, this really good book. I've had it for a couple of years, and uh, you have dillied with it for a while. I've been reading it more thoroughly now. But the, the title of the book is The Year of Lear, Shakespeare in 1606. And so, so some of the, the historical background to this is, it's, it's, I'm, I'm kind of switching a little bit to the history now of Shakespeare. But um, in 1606, Shakespeare would have been about 42 years of age. And so, so in, in some ways, he's getting uh, older as a playwright, but he's more of an expert of a playwright by this time. And a lot of the plays that we're going to cover this year on the Elizabethan kings of, you know, of, uh, of England, he wrote very early in his career. And so, so by the time he's, he's uh, getting a hold of King Lear, uh, like I said, he's, he's 42. 
he didn't expect to live much longer, but he, he wrote King Lear, and he also wrote Macbeth in, in this time period. And so those were considered some of his greater plays. But what, what Shapiro suggests uh, in his book, which I think is really fascinating, is that, that uh, they know that Shakespeare wrote King Lear, but essentially what he probably did was he actually perfected an older play called King Lear, spelled L-I-E-R. And so, so but, but what he says, we have to remember the history now at this time, is you know, Queen Elizabeth died in 1603. And so, so in some ways when she died, not only were there's a lot of turmoil about who was going to succeed, or succeed her, but there was turmoil, uh, let's say, in Shakespeare's life because he didn't know who would sponsor him. And remember, the, the, the people who wrote plays, the actors, they had to be sponsored by a noble so that they didn't look like they were just uh, vagabonds. And so, so they had to be sponsored. And, uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth had sponsored um, William Shakespeare. And uh, essentially what happened then, once she died, it was her first cousin, James VI of Scotland, who took the throne in England. And uh, this is history that's just, just kind of amazing in a way because you know, Scotland and England had their trouble between each other and there, were the, there was the royalty in Scotland and there was the royalty in England and uh, you know, they would war against each other but, but essentially what happened uh, when, when James was given the throne in England, he was James VI of Scotland, and then he became James I of England. And so, so here this new throne comes to him, and, and essentially um, he's king of Scotland and king of England at the same time. And uh, you know, there's still seeds of all this. Pro- this created a great problem for him because he, he, is, he just uh, expected that as soon as he took the throne, that they would unite the kingdom. And in other words, it wouldn't be the kingdom of Scotland, it wouldn't be the kingdom of England, it would be the United Kingdom. And, uh, you know, we, we've just had in the last, how many years have we had fights between Scotland and England? There's still a fight between Scotland and England. Scotland wants to secede from the kingdom. This has been going on for decades and centuries. And so, so, uh, uh, James the Sixth. I mean, he he was really kind of a spiritual man. He was kind of an intellectual man, and uh, you know, he he really believed. I, I I believe he believed he was descended from King David, and and he said, uh, you know, very very clearly to people, he believed he was the new King Solomon, and so so uh, he knew history. And of course, uh, we've talked so many times. Uh, on uh, you know KPCG FM about Mr. Armstrong's book The United States and Britain in Prophecy and it's all about the throne of David and uh, we you know I've talked even in in uh, you know podcast number two about the fact that uh, you know Jesus Christ is going to come back and sit on David's throne and reign forever so uh, James just thought people would just fall right into this and so uh, when, when he was first made king, it was right after her death, that uh, they couldn't even have ceremonies. There was, there was an absolute plague in England, and it was causing a lot of havoc. Um, you know, th- there was, uh, they couldn't have parliament. You know, a parliament has to be the one to decide where they're going to join the kingdoms. 
And uh, the, the, the thing is, is what Shapiro really says in his book, and I, I tend to agree with him, is that Shakespeare, um, I, I guess I forgot to say, is that, that once James really came to England and got situated in England, he decided that he would sponsor Shakespeare and Shakespeare's men. And so, so they're no longer the king's men, they're now the king's men. And so, so as it turns out, James VI and it was just avid to have plays. And you know, they, they were after plays all the time. And uh, especially over their, their Christmas holidays, they wanted to have all these plays. And so, so in, in some ways, um, you know, Shakespeare at that time, he would revamp plays to make them fresh and new. And what, what Shapiro alleges in his book is that, that uh, you know, Shakespeare took an older play on King Lear. It was, the, it was part of the Queen's, let, let's say, her, her plays or the, you know, the, uh, from the Queen's men. He took it and made it better. And actually what, what he was doing is he was politically getting involved with the idea of bringing the kingdom together. And so in the former Queen's plays, you only see the word England. But it's in King Lear that you see the word British for the first time. And so, so there's a history there. It's like, why, why would Shakespeare go ahead and revamp an older play? And it's because he was showing honor to, to King James because G King James was keeping him, well, employed. And, uh, you know, he was... He was uh, he was out to uh, you know support the you know the plays and and going to plays and uh, you know King Lear you know the the play actually deals with the critical problems that happen to a kingdom that's divided and so so in, in many ways what Shakespeare wanted to do was to help James you know unite the kingdom get it united so they didn't go through the critical problems that well Lear went through you know in the eighth century. And uh, uh, like I said, the title of his plays, this is the true history of the chronicles of King Lear and the death of his three daughters. And so, so uh, you know, I, I think there's, there's a lot more there than what we think. And so I'm, I want to talk about this book uh, more as we get into the heart of King Lear. And I think it's, uh, to me, it's, it's just really a fascinating book. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a long book. We'll talk about it more, but it's it's so well written, and uh, uh, let me just I'll just read you. I have a little bit of time left. I'm going to read you. This will be from page, um, I guess forty, to show you. Um, and this definitely re goes right back to King Lear, uh, or we should say Shakespeare's version. This is page forty, and it's just I'm going to give you. Um, you know, just a, just a little bit of a clip here. And when you start reading it, and we're, we'll be reading this, uh, starting to read this play next time. It says, For Jacobeans, inundated by pageantry, polemic, and gossip about the proposed union, that's talking about the union of, you know, bringing Britain together, and any, any play that turned to be Britain's distant past to explore the consequences of a divided kingdom would have been seen as part of this conversation. And Shakespeare didn't wait long to locate King Lear within this ongoing debate. King James' warning about dividing your kingdoms is closely echoed in the opening lines of King Lear 
in Gloucester's remark about the division of the kingdoms. And that's going to be in, in Act 1, Scene 1, verses 3 and 4. And it's right there. And I got my King Lear out the other day when I was reading it and looked at it. And, and to be honest, for everybody out there, I never noticed that, that before. But it's immediately the play goes right into talking about government. And so, so to me, I, I was just shocked. It says, the contemporaneous feel of the beginning of Shakespeare's play is reinforced in Kent's words. He says, I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany, Albany than Cornwall. And uh, again, you, you wonder, why does this come out so, so be, in the beginning? Because they are introducing, I mean, Gloucester's introducing his illegitimate son to Kent. And the thing is, what uh, Shapiro goes on to say, Jacobean playgoers knew that the King James' elder son, Henry, was the Duke of Albany, and his younger son, uh, Charles, was the Duke of Cornwall. And so, so here, the play is being shown to King James, and there's you know people from the community or the nobles are there, and the first time they see this play, you know they know that one son is the Duke of Albany, one son is is Corn is uh, uh, yeah the Duke of of Cornwall, and they're they're talking about I thought the king, you know, you know trusted one more than the other. And then, of course, there's another line down there where this says, well, you just can't tell. Who is he favoring? And so, uh, so, so anyway, it says, to speak of Albany was to speak of Scotland. James himself had been previously Duke of Albany, as had his father. It was for Shakespeare, an uncharacteristically topical start, the opening gossipy exchange, marking the play as distinctly Jacobean in its political concerns. There's another great book I have. Uh, that we'll be talking about as we go through the series um, is uh, it's called Shakespeare's Politics, and so so Satan uh, it's not Satan Shakespeare. Uh, I, was, I thought it was funny last night on Fox they were talking about gaffes, and they were laughing at a gaffe by uh, Joe Biden, which he has gaffes all the time. But uh, I sat there thinking, yeah, I have gaffes all the time too. So uh, so anyway. The last thing I wanted to say before I, before I sign off here is to really enjoy these plays. Do not hesitate to write me questions as you read. Well, that's all the time I have for today's program. On our next program, I will begin our William Shakespeare King Lear play. Now, you can buy good used copies of Shakespeare's plays at abebooks.com. You may also be able to find copies in your local bookstore. Of course, you can also check your local library. Now, please write me any comments you have to comments at kpcg.fm. You can also comment at my Twitter page, Shakespeare's Royal Education. Remember, you have to do that just right to get through. So please be sure to join me next time as we advance our royal education. You've been listening to Shakespeare's Royal Education on Trumpet Radio. 101.3 KPCG, streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com. <laughs>